This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. When change comes, opportunity abounds. We're about to enter a period of the fastest pace of technological change in all human history, something we refer to as the exponential age. And Real Vision is going to be your guide to this incredible future. Hey, everyone. Uh, it's good to be back on Real Vision, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad uh, we got the invitation to hopefully be able to share some insights or some thoughts, at least, uh, between myself and my uh, growing friendship with Sultan, who I referenced on uh, the podcast I was on with Raul Powell. Uh, hi, Sultan. How you doing? I'm doing great, Jordy. How are you today? I am fantastic. This is going to be a different uh, forum for us, but hopefully we can, uh, you know, bring a little information and provoke some thought out there. So I'll just start off uh, right away with uh, giving people uh, the opportunity to learn more about you and your bio. But I'm not going to pretend to uh, say your last name and try to butcher it the way a lot of the publications do. So uh, I'll just call you Sultan. But why don't you give everybody uh, your your full name and uh, kind of a background on you so they know who they're dealing with. Uh, happy to, and happy to pronounce my name correctly so that all of the deep fake hackers out there can can get it correct uh, next time. So it's Sultan Megji. Um, <laughs> I joke that it's French, but yeah. So I've been in tech for over 30 years. I got my first NSF grant in the spring of 1992, focused on what we would now call deep learning and artificial intelligence, and have been in and around that field for, for that amount of time. I actually paid my way through college by working on what we call first-gen internet tech. So, you know, the first web browser, HTTP, XML, things like that. I worked on something called NTP, which when Y2K happened was really important. It was how we kept all the clocks synchronized so that when the world didn't end, we knew we were fine. Went over there to the markets, spent a bunch of time doing everything from opening up the New York Stock Exchange to internet-based trading to mobile trading and things like that. Spent some time on the 9-11 recovery operations. And then, you know, for the next decade, kind of got my corporate MBA. I spent some time in the C-level of big companies and then went on into the startup universe where I've done a number of startups. I've been teaching at a number of universities, both in quantitative finance as well as computer science. I'm currently a professor at Duke where I teach cybersecurity, Web3, crypto, and artificial intelligence. Spent some time... Uh, also in the U.S. government, where until the early part of last year, I was the first chief innovation officer at the FDIC. I spent a lot of time on emerging tech policy, so quantum, AI, crypto, things like that. 
as well as on some of the more interesting security and resilience stuff about the banking system. Um, please don't blame me for anything that's happened uh, since I left. Uh, I, I have no uh, no active role with the banking regulators. Uh, <laughs> thank goodness. And uh, and currently, between teaching at Duke, I am uh, CEO and founder of an artificial intelligence company that we started. Uh, not too long ago, and uh, we're probably going to talk about that just a little bit. So there's there's the short version, George. Yeah, that, that's the short short version. I'm I'm just glad that I'm not giving my bio uh, as. <laughs> I don't know. I think your time in, in South America is far more interesting than anything I've done. But at some point, at some point, we'll flip roles, and I'll interview you, and you can spend some time talking about that. There we go. I'll save that for another one. So we we are going to spend since you finished up on on artificial intelligence. Um, we are going to spend most of the time here on that. Um, a lot of different places we, we hope to go. Some of this is stuff we've already talked about. But before, just so everyone out there understands our relationship and, and why I'm doing this with you and how this came about. So Sultan and I met, um, I guess it's, is it two years ago now? Yeah, about almost two years ago, yeah. Yeah. Um, and we met and we spent, I, I, I would say, a good hour and change uh, almost solely on crypto. And it led into kind of my focusing on Web 3.0. I spent a ton of time as I was learning it on Real Vision, uh, which has some 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 great uh, information out there on Web 3.0. But then uh, in November, it shifted. And Sultan and I started really focusing our relationship uh, and expanding it on artificial intelligence. So before that, we were just getting together every couple months. Now we're working together on a project, which is uh, in, in, incredibly cool to me. Um, and most importantly, he uh, he wanted me to, or he suggested back in April for me to take Python 101 to be able to really use uh, the full force of ChatGPT, the plugins and everything else. And, and I will say it was one of the best things I've done in my life. I now use ChatGPT multiple hours a day, as I said with Raul. So, I think a great place to start here, Sultan, for everyone. We know AI, and you know this especially, has been around for a long time. Um, this is not something new, but obviously between what's going on with the hype and everything, something clearly changed in November. Can you kind of break it down for people as to what happened to accelerate this to this point? Sure. You know, I'll break it up into really two different things that have happened in parallel. And the first is is really the end result of, you know, 40 years of development. You know, some of the first AI that got put into production was, and this is real AI, not you know just machine learning, was actually done by Toyota and other Japanese car companies in the 70s and 80s to optimize their manufacturing lines. And so for the last 40 years, we've been building a tremendous amount of technology to enable people to build and deploy artificial intelligence at lower and lower costs, faster and faster. And over the last three or four years, especially out of COVID, a huge amount of that technology has matured now. And so we're at a point where, you know, you can sit down and spend what it was an afternoon, basically, your first introductory Python class, right? A couple of videos and, you know, installing it on your laptop. And you can go from zero to one very quickly. And so that's the first thing that's happened. The second is the better part of almost a decade of billions of dollars of research and first generation, what we call transformers and what became gen what we now call generative AI actually started to come out on mass. And OpenAI did something really interesting, which is to spend a tremendous amount of marketing money, which IBM obviously had done with Watson, even though the amount of AI sitting behind that was fairly nominal, and make it available to everyone at either free or very low cost and in a very consumable way through a web browser. And now all of a sudden you had hundreds of millions of people around the world able to touch artificial intelligence and do something meaningful with it. 
for the very first time. And the combination of that tooling and the ability for people to say, hey, I can put my hands on a keyboard and do this myself has radically altered how we think about artificial intelligence. And we now see it in other parts of the market, whether it's you know, within, within you know, venture investment or we look at what enterprises are doing or how companies are re reorganizing themselves around utilizing these technologies. But it's really those two things, the scale and the ability of those enabling technologies to be at, you know, at anyone's fingertips. And the vast majority of it is open source which makes it even more accessible than worrying about, you know, downloading a license from someone. You know, when you put Python on your computer, Jordy, it was open source. You didn't have to pay anyone. You didn't have to license it. You didn't have to, you know, create a login. You could just download it and start using it. Yeah, and it's funny you say it because when you say you can go to zero to one quickly, I just think about this is like zero to 60 in terms of how much impact yeah. this can have. And I, I wrote a, a paper recently on code interpreter and kind of comparing it to the the feeling I got when I started using Waze. But you think about how long it took from the time applications came out for me to get on Waze. The whole thing with ChatGPT and AutoGPT and code interpreter, and now the fact that there's so many LLMs, it seems to be going at incredibly fast pace. And the reason that I think it's become so important is this gets released at the end of November. And I think people forget this, but the NASDAQ um, is up over 40% since the time that ChatGPT was released. And I think everyone has has justifiably called, you know, compared this to 99 and 2000. Uh, and I think we're going to, you know, segue now into some companies. But can you compare, you know, you were involved in at the end of that point in, in the Internet. Can you compare what's happening right now with the hype to what was going on in 99 and 2000? It's it's a really interesting question, and you know if you think about from the from when the very first web browser you know was made available to a very small group of people, we're talking 1991, 1992, and the culmination of that was really around e-commerce and what happened in the late 90s and that boom, right? The ability to use a credit card on the internet, you know, we worked on some of the first credit card processing systems, the ability to have an encrypted channel, so you know you were having a secure financial transaction. That entire sequence, you know, arguably took about seven years. So we went from zero to 50 or zero to 60 to use your language around e-commerce and web one and web 1.5 in about seven years. We are seeing something very similar, but instead of it taking seven years, we're seeing it take you know, something like 12 months. If you look at, if we, if we come back and have a conversation and compare the way you and I live our daily lives in November of this year and compare from November of last year, you and I both write, I'm a professor, I'm building a, a very fast growing company and the daily lives that I, that we, you and I exist in are radically different. You know, the, the example I give people is, you know, usually it takes me about a week to build a new curriculum for a new graduate computer science course, you know, going from zero to here's my curriculum, here are my exams, here's what I'm going to teach every class, you know, all that kind of stuff. Utilizing generative AI, I built an entirely new class for this fall in about three hours. And I was multitasking because I was actually you know, doing other things while that was going on. You're the same way, right? Your content generation pipeline has radically accelerated, right? And so I don't even, I don't actually think that the 90s is probably the right metaphor. I would go, you know, something like either the invention of the of commercial air travel or go backwards even a little bit more and look at the railroad or go backwards a little bit more and look at the printing press. Those are the scale of changes we're talking about. Yeah, and I, I so as two people, and again, different backgrounds. I have very limited coding um, in my in my uh, my <laughs> history, 
you got to go back to Morgan Stanley back in the early 90s where I did any real kind of coding. And then from that point, I used coders to develop things. And so we're both using it in a way on a daily basis. And there's not one thing that I do in my job that I don't think about how AI could be incorporated into it. And we're doing that across the firm now in the operations and the marketing and then in the investment side. Uh, and that brings up a question. I read a tweet today, which I found very interesting and I agree with, and I want to get your, your comment on it, but also bring it into a bigger question, which is how large companies seem to be approaching this new wave of AI and the restrictions that have gone on. Um, here's the quote, IT prob or it probably takes 100 plus hours to hit the tipping point where it becomes second nature to integrate it into your daily work and life. That was a comment on how important it is to play around with artificial intelligence and specifically chat GPT, I could not agree more. Um, I've seen it with the employees here, meaning the more they use it uh, and the more that they play around with it, the more their brains start changing in terms of how to use it for different things. Talk about the fact that if you just type in how large companies are handling AI, they're restricting their employees. Do you think that this is a mistake and how are, you know how do you think it's gonna impact those companies in the long run? Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. The Well, I do think it's a mistake. And frankly, the biggest mistake that I'm seeing is, is most companies treating a lot of these enabling tools as just another piece of their enterprise IT environment. You know, you've got your lockdown laptop, you've got your domain controllers, you have all this, you know, legacy technology from 20 years ago that's still dragging itself along. You know, for, for a while now, I've been a proponent of not having a, a chief information officer. I think for the most part, especially with the current generation of workforce, we're also digitally native. That's, you know, really a vestige of people, you know, older than, than, than you and I, Jordy, who are analog in nature. And that's just not the way to build or run companies. Um, I, you know, I think at the end of the day, the most effective companies, the companies that are going to make up the most, you know, the, the highest revenue businesses, the largest market cap, you know, these mega cap companies, they're not going to be companies that restrict AI. They're going to be companies that give agency to the people in their offices to go off and, and be creative and be explore and find ways to make their, you know, make their jobs better. Yeah, I was interviewing someone uh, for a job the other day and she was asking, you know, a bunch of questions about like time off and stuff like that. And I, and I fundamentally said, listen, I don't care. Get the job done. You would use whatever tools you need, and if we need to buy something for you, okay, great. Let me know. But like, you know, fundamentally, I'm paying you X to get Y amount of work done in Z amount of time. Like that's it. And the companies that understand that AI is going to be the fastest accelerator to that kind of value creation are the ones that I get interested in, that I want to invest in, and the ones that don't are the ones I'm going to avoid, frankly. And I think you know, as we think about building, whether it's you know investment theses moving forward, companies to look at, or, you know, what the comp the composition of the S&P 500 looks like a few years from now. I think this becomes a, a fundamental uh, pivot point for a lot of these companies. You either embrace it and make it part of your daily life, or you start looking, you know, start looking elsewhere because you're, you're, you're going to end up losing all your best people and therefore you're going to lose the ability to be innovative and drive value. Well, within that answer, you brought up, um, an interesting thing, which I know we've talked about, um, you brought up the S&P 500 and, you know, what it'll look like. And I think a couple months ago, you said to me when I asked the question, based on your answer just now, which is 
what is this disruption going to mean to bigger companies, smaller companies, who's going to benefit? What percentage of the S&P 500 companies don't even exist in it now or aren't companies now? And you gave a, you know, a number, very high, 40%. Um, the lifespan of a company with inside the S&P has been declining for a long time, obviously because of the disruption that comes from technology and the ability for smaller companies to not only catch up, but disrupt established businesses. So in your vantage point, there's there's three parts to this. So one, you have your own business that you started up recently. And I can say as someone who's known you for only two years, and we were talking about how you were going to direct your career coming out of the government, uh, this kind of came up after ChatGPT. So you have that vantage point of how quickly you've been able to start up a business. The second thing is in your business, you get to see how other businesses are dealing with um, companies. Can, can you talk about those two and then combine it with the concept of why you think small businesses uh, are, are going to you know, be able to rise so quickly here? Well, that's, that's a huge question, George. So let me try to break it up into a few pieces. So first is, yeah, I think I think one of the very first things I said to you when I met you was I, I had absolutely zero interest in starting or running a business. <laughs> I, think, I think that might be a direct quote from the very first time you and I had coffee. Uh, and obviously that that's not true. Um, the, the, that's part one. Part two is I, you know, spending time in the government, you, you're kind of in molasses mode, right? You're, you're disassociated from from what's actually going on in the real world. And so it took me nearly a year after coming out to really get reacclimated to what was going on, you know, where the tooling was, where the, where the value was and where the opportunities were. And out of that, you know, right around the same time, basically Q4 of last year, two things happened that, that made it seem almost ridiculous for me to, to not start an AI company. One was looking at how much demand there was for the kinds of innovative solutions that, that you can bring in this space. And number two was that the sales part of, of AI, which used to be the, the biggest problem, you, you try to sell AI to someone, it's like, well, how does it work? Show me the black box. You know, I don't trust it. A human didn't do it. That has culturally disappeared entirely, at least in enough of the market that you don't have to worry about it. So, you know, starting, starting a business, we started building some product, we started building some tech, we started going to a couple of places, and we went from, you know, fundamentally zero to eight figures of revenue in 90 days because of the enabling technology, where the market was, and it's allowed us to be incredibly picky because there are companies out there that still ask the same questions and still make you go through the traditional enterprise IT universe, et cetera, et cetera. But there are a lot of companies that realize that this is how they step up. It's not a matter of survival. It's a matter of how do I step up? I'm playing at one level and I want to play at that next level. Or I'm worried about losing my people and I want to you know, grow that community. And so you know, from my vantage point, I think anybody who's good at this kind of technology should leave whatever big company they're in or leave whatever operation they're in and just go start their own company because you will make more money, you will have more freedom, and there is way more appetite now. So that's one comment. The second comment is there are so many companies looking for this kind of solution, this kind of product, this kind of uh, transformation of their business that the demand is an order of magnitude higher than what the supply currently is. Two years from now, that probably won't be the case. But what, what most companies need in terms of advanced artificial intelligence, whether it's the kind of stuff we're doing or you know, more traditional generative AI or, or something else, you know, there is so much demand right now that you can kind of go off and if you're in a position like mine, you can be really picky. Right. I mean, it's it's a, it's a really great thing. You know, we have a business line focused on the government. We have a business line focused on you know financial services. We have a third business line. You know, we're we don't have a sales staff. 
we're, we get to be very picky. We just kind of go off and, and we, we make sure that, you know, we're kind of selling a hammer and we make sure that we're looking, you know, we find people who are looking for a nail. Um, you know, and it's a, it's a, it's great. You know, will we be, you know, the next Palantir? Probably not. Um, I, 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 I don't think I want to be the next Palantir, but you know, we're going to do just fine. And happily we, we don't have to, you know, stress about that for now, for now anyway. You gave me a couple, um, a couple new things to, to, to ask about on, on your experience now with both the teaching and then also on this talent comment you made. Um, first of all, before I get into talent leaving big companies, um, because I happen to agree with you and, and uh, you know, it'll go back to kind of the original conversations we were having on Web 3.0 crypto, but also your experience being part of Web 1.0 and what it was supposed to mean in terms of freedom and creativity and how AI is opening that playing field in a similar way that crypto did uh, based on what you're saying. But to start out with, with your college students, number one, there's been a lot of um, talk about how to integrate ChatGPT and LLMs into the school world, uh, since most people are saying it's going to lead to a lot of cheating. Can you just give your thoughts on how you're approaching it, but also, uh, I guess, the way you see it playing out in the future, the relationship between school and AI? It's a great question, and I really wish more universities were, were kind of being more thoughtful about this. But the first is, I mean, exactly the story I just gave. You know, I use it as a, as a professor. I use it to build curriculum. I use it to you know, those who know me know that I hate PowerPoint presentations. Like it's, it's in the top five things I hate most in the entire world. I just can't stand them. Um, and, but guess what? I have an AI that I write up some stuff. I throw it through generative AI and it spits out a PowerPoint presentation for me. And guess what? That's great. That works. It's something the students can look at. They can reference later. It helps them take notes. It's an enabling tool for them. Right. And it's interesting. You comment on cheating, you know, um, I don't think it is well understood how much cheating actually exists inside of universities, even at the graduate level. It's a it's a it's a daily occurrence. There are certain populations of students where it is they're almost incentivized to cheat, and um, and you know you'll you'll find out you know we we know about you know there are these GitHub repositories and there are these WeChat groups where it's all just you know sharing as much information as possible to cheat, um, and that's a real problem. And so you know you have to use generative AI systems in order to. Uh, in order to catch that, right? And so that actually becomes a non-trivial amount of effort that, that you have to put in, um, whether it's you or you, know, you direct your TAs or whatever to do it. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. The third is, and this is the thing that I think most people just miss entirely, you have to make it part of the curriculum. You have to make it part of their daily lives. So great, let's say you have some students and you want them to write a paper on the evolution of web one to web three as a as a historical construct within, within the history of computer science. Okay, that's a really interesting thing. Most people don't know that story, but they should. It's something every computer scientist should know because it's fundamental to what they're building everything else on, right? I can go to any generative AI system and I can have it write me that history. And it's going to be even, even in the good generative AIs, you know, the pre, the pre-optimized version of GPT-4 or some of these others, or some of the open source ones, I'll get something that's somewhere between 60 and 70% accurate. So guess what? My assignment should be go off and do that and then help me understand what it got wrong. Help me understand that you understand the topic well enough that you can explain why your paper is better than the generative AI paper. And what the learning system and the training modules for next, the next generations of LLMs might do to avoid the errors of the current generation of LLMs, which are you know, kind of 
falling off a cliff in terms of their accuracy and capability set um, because they were trained on a terrible data set in kind of a mediocre way. So you have this opportunity as a professor to really integrate it into the discussion because the kids are doing it anyway, right? This is part of their daily lives, just like it's part of yours and it's part of mine. Avoiding it or ignoring it is, is frankly dangerous and ends up with the students not getting what they need out of their master's degree or whatever degree they're getting. That's really, so you're integrating it in and you're also talking and bringing up something, you know, not specifically hallucinations, but let's say bad information that comes out, which is one of the negatives that constantly comes out. I was at a conference uh, last month and we were sitting around a table and we got into a conversation about artificial intelligence and you can usually see the skeptics and the people that um, immediately start focusing on the security issues, the hallucinations issue, and like the going, um, I'd say, Number one thing that gets brought up as an example is this um, case, this lawyer who uh, used ChatGPT for his defense and came up with cases that didn't exist. Uh, what you're talking about is actually, I mean, and again, it's forcing students to use it and then to figure out where it's not good, which I guess in the end should help help AI get better the more you're using it and kind of going through it and, and going through the models, but also not staying away. Can you, can you, Talk, make sure you can get this point across because I think there's still a lot of people that are focused on the negative side of it. And I think the security and the hallucination side is, is the focal point. Well, you have to remember uh, that every single generative AI system which that's, that is generally available right now is basically trained by pointing at the, at the internet. Well, if I want to have someone write a term, if I want to have somebody write a term paper, I'm not going to tell them to go to Twitter and ask for a treatise on the difference between socialism and communism. You're going to get garbage, right? And the problem with having a fundamentally internet-oriented training environment, which is what most of the current generation LLMs that are available use, is you end up training it on some really mediocre stuff. I'm waiting for somebody to say, here's my LLM that was trained on Roger's Thesaurus and the Oxford English Dictionary and insert five books on rhetoric that I am not a good enough writer to know about, right? And to create something that just speaks English and that knows how to go search for stuff. It's important to remember university is really about learning how to learn, and then creating the pathways in the brain for critical thinking so that when you are presented with a problem, you can then analyze the problem thoughtfully and then analyze it and then attempt to solve it or at least create a framework that allows you to guide other people to solve it, right? A university is not just a piece of paper, right? And I think a lot of students right now and a lot of people kind of outside of academia have kind of lost that thread. And so you have to understand that you're using a hammer, but it's a flawed hammer. And that you as a computer science student like mine are, are gonna be building the better hammers later. And so you have to critically analyze it. And so I'm a big fan of critical thinking in, in that regard. The other thing to remember is if you are thinking about a general use technology, it's not gonna be amazing at any one thing. It's gonna be okay at a million things. And so the best LLMs over the next couple of years are not gonna be general use LLMs. They're gonna be targeted at specific problem sets. They're gonna say, okay, I wanna have an LLM that just does clinical genetic analysis for specific cancer types, great. That's gonna be a good LLM because it's gonna know how to speak English, it's gonna know the right data, it's gonna have a highly curated learning environment, and it's gonna be, in essence, governed in a way that allows it to give you thoughtful information or say, I don't know just like if you're talking to an expert, right? If you ever talk to an expert about clinical genetics, you're never gonna get a yes or a no answer. You're gonna get, here's four papers, 
here's what I think, here's what the data is saying, but here's all the stuff we don't know, right? And that's the nature of humanity, right? All right, so let, let, let's, since you talked about your students, um, I think I'm, I just did a podcast on the importance of a different skill set for people in a world of AI, meaning I've already seen it where not everyone embraces using it. There seems to be a fear of it. Um, I'm not sure what that is because it will reduce the amount of time you have to spend on mundane tasks and give you more time to think and connect dots. Uh, are there skills in the people you're looking to hire for your own business right now that maybe are different than before AI? Uh, I know you're you're still in the tech side, so these people are going to have some kind of expertise. But for people outside of technology that are looking to improve uh, the way their employees, their efficiency and productivity of their employees, what types of skills, soft skills, do you think are more important now than before the release of ChatGPT? Oh, that's an interesting question. I wish you'd put it in the preview. I would have thought. <laughs> <laughs> gotta go off. I gotta go off-roading every now and then. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, so here, I'll, I'll answer this in, in two parts. You'll love this. So when I when a student asks me that, I'll say there are really three things I think are going to make somebody entering the workforce today very effective. And when you're leaving university, I, I hope that you can just one degree or another answer, you know, kind of show how you're qualified in the following three areas. The first is your communication skills, written, verbal, presentation, you know, the ability to stand in front of a crowd, even if it's, you know, five people and, and say something. The second is the technical mastery of being able to sit down with a clean laptop and go from zero to creating something, whether it's, you know, uh, a piece of art or a video game or some code or whatever. We are no longer, that is no longer an optional skill set for someone entering the workforce. And then the third is some degree of domain knowledge. There's an area you care about. You care about health. You care about finance. You care about entertainment. You care about something, right? If you can combine those three things, you're going to be in a great spot. I think for people already in the workforce where they probably already have good communication skills because you will have picked it up over 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and you will already know a domain incredibly well. You'll know something. You'll know, you know, I don't know, quantitative analysis of public equities or whatever that is, right? The thing that you might be missing is that is that hand on keyboard activity, right? And you, Jordy, you are the perfect test case of someone that I would hire because I can hand you a laptop and say, install Python and, you know, write hello world and then install, you know, this open source thing and do this or install OpenBB and tell me why it's not quite as good as a Bloomberg terminal, right? Um, which by the way, for those who aren't, uh, who don't know what OpenBB is, it's an open source project. You should absolutely look at it. Um, we've name dropped AutoGPT so far today, we've, uh, which is also open source, and we've name dropped uh, OpenBB. Highly recommend you look at both of those. They're absolutely fantastic tools. Um, but you have the ability to do that. And so when I'm hiring right now, I am hiring for communication skills, good culture, and I'm hiring for domain experience. I do not need them to be, for the most part, PhDs in computer science who are just guys who sit in a room and code. That is what this enabling tooling that I talked about at the beginning allows you to do. We took a, a person who joined our organization not too long ago who fundamentally had no technical skills, none whatsoever, and went from zero to AutoGPT on their laptop, having it build stuff, having it do them, basically duplicated my uh, content creation pipeline, which, which Jordy, you know quite well, um, in the exact same way. And it took him two days, basically. <laughs> so and, you know what's funny about your answer? So since you didn't hear the podcast, that, and I forget the exact title of the podcast. And by the way, I keep referencing this podcast that Sultan has done with me. My podcast, 
podcast is in search of green marbles and we just did one on these soft skills so you hit communication you hit creativity for your domain experience i called it competitiveness which is literally the ability to sit down and realize that if you do this you will get better um, because that's what happens with ai it's literally like having the smartest person i've ever met next to me who makes mistakes but is incredibly efficient and so it collaborates with me which is the other one collaboration skills and understanding how you work with another person because yeah. really chat gpt to me is another person it helps me think it connects dots i ask it for analogies i ask it for titles that's the way i like to think about things so when i come up with something i'll just say hey give me five analogies that would work really well with these two disparate things uh, and then critical thinking and those are the c's and the whole argument was that the softer skills you're breaking apart iq where the commoditized portion of iq is the memorization that we got in school and now these these CQ, this whole thing of competitiveness, communication, critical thinking, creativity, all of the things that you mentioned in there are, are, are important. So I, I completely agree. It's funny. I, you went off-roading, but you gave me the answers that, uh, that I think are, <laughs> think are definitely showing up. Um, I wanted to take it a different direction here um, in terms of breakthroughs. And, you know, one of the most fascinating podcasts I listened to last year, uh, way before ChatGPT came out was with, I believe his name is Dave Johnson, who's the head of artificial intelligence for Moderna. And I've had this belief uh, that when we're connecting back to economics and people are arguing about inflation and this and that, the inflation to me was caused by the breakthrough of artificial intelligence to come up, come with an answer to the pandemic far faster than the government ever thought possible. So when you print a certain amount of money, you're doing it because you believe that the pandemic's gonna last for a long time. And I think most forecasts on when we'd have a vaccine were in the three to four years, maybe at the fastest we could get to two, but that would be a record. And the blueprint for the vaccine from everything that you've heard from Moderna now was actually there a, a weekend later after they, they got the sequenced genome. And so, that was a breakthrough in AI that clearly has gone on. Since then, we've had alpha fold with protein folding. We've had a fusion breakthrough where AI has been involved. We have all this excitement uh, and uh, disbelief over LK99. And I asked you about it, and you obviously know a lot about these, uh, all of these, but it seems that these breakthroughs are happening more and more because of AI, and it seems like it's speeding up. And these breakthroughs, obviously, like the vaccine example, will have impacts on our modern day, kind of the way we make decisions long term. Can you talk about how many more break, you know, are we in an age of, of massive breakthroughs and the impact that this is going to have on long term assumptions? I, I think it's going to be difficult to say that we're not about to see some degree of exponential discovery because between the enabling tools, the amount of data that's been digitized already, and how so much of the infrastructure is now digitally native, that once you start gluing these things together, it's very easy to point an AI at it, right? You know, there are entire segments, entire market segments where you know, you might need 500 databases to, to analyze something, and that might take years to glue together. So I, I, I commercialized some clinical genetic genetics technology like 10 years ago, and it was like 400 databases, and we had a team of like 20 developers, and it just took like three years, basically, to go from zero to something useful that you could use in a clinical setting, maybe a little less. And you could replicate that entire thing in about a day now with the enabling technology. And so now it is no longer just 
automating a process or digitizing a process, it's now the point where you can say, like with AlphaFold, point the technology at this data, give it a problem set, orchestrate it appropriately, and it will just spit out a thousand different answers. And then you can create a different system that will analyze it, those different answers, and prioritize what might make the most sense for you or not. And we're, we're this this ability for us to automate the 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 innovation, to automate the research, to automate the discovery of prioritize things that go from the science bucket to the engineering bucket, which has traditionally been, especially in places like biotech, one of the biggest you know, failure points and risk factors and costs, by the way, you're now at a point where that all of a sudden that, that economics changes. And so in as much as I would compare building an AI company to building a biotech, there are places where you can build biotechs from zero to one and get to a point where you're in a phase two trial in a very small number of years instead of five, six, seven years. You know, there, there have been a couple of companies that will take, you know, orphan drugs or something like that, and then, you know, try, try out some alternative use and then spit them through an IPO, make a bunch of money, sell them off to a Moderna or a Pfizer or someone like that and, and move on. This is different than that. You know, I'm sure there are people listening who know that kind of SPAC-based, biotech-based two process. This is not that. This is, okay, I have a database of every rare genetic disorder, and I have a database of every drug we've won through phase two for drug company X. You can hand two people a reasonable laptop and an internet connection, and they can go through and look for all the things that all the other guys missed over the last 20 years. And you can rerun that every day. And so every morning you could wake up to an email saying, oh, by the way, this SNP there's this thing over here that you didn't notice. And, oh, there's this research paper over here. Maybe you should read it. And all of a sudden, the time for value for an individual, for those real honest-to-God experts, it's, it's no time whatsoever. And with the automation being built in, you now are at a point where if you're in an environment like that and you aren't doing these kinds of things, somebody is going to come along that does do that. And they're either going to charge you a fortune for it or they're just going to eat your lunch eventually. Yeah, what's really interesting about that too is, I mean, the largest industry in the United States right now is healthcare. And we obviously have a, uh, <laughs> a massive debt situation that involves a lot, the future liabilities that we have uh, for people getting older and being less healthy. So what you're describing, and, and you know, you were the one who, who told me to look into protein folding and alpha fold. And as I do with well, everything you kind of give me some insight in, but also my general thing, I love learning about what the future is going to look like. The, the thing that's different today from 10 years ago, when I used to look at things 10 years ago, these were just kind of guesses on what would happen and when we'd have autonomous driving. And when we, if you go back and read the things from 2013, maybe 30% of it is, is happening at the, at the level. The difference with AI, we're, we're getting to the problem. We're making daily breakthroughs in, in health. And also where I want to kind of uh, have, have you expand upon this, you know, you and I did a podcast and the energy side is so important. So if on the one side we're impacting longevity and we're impacting health, which is a major thing at the same time, We've had breakthroughs in fusion uh, since, and again, it's it's not because of ChatGPT, but it's been over the last six months we've had some breakthroughs. And then you have this LK99, and for, for those who, who, who didn't see it or they don't know what it is, we're talking about something very important, um, and you can describe how important it would be. But the reason I want to spend time on it is not because it's guaranteed to happen. There's a lot of skepticism on this, but you and I had a conversation and what I said was, regardless of whether it's it's true or not, at this point, 
the beauty of human and uh, human intelligence is if we're being creative and testing things and we're getting to the point where we're we've made we've made it 93% of the way there ai should make the last 7% much easier than it's been in the past because if you get that close can you talk about that but also lk99 and what it would mean if 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 we yeah. did solve that problem well we'll tie it back to what we were just talking about you know any discovery pipeline anytime you're going from you know kind of a question to you know a solution anytime you go down that pipeline journey there are going to be two places where ai is going to have the the biggest fundamental impact and it's at the it's at the edges it's at the very beginning it's the very end right so let's just say lk99 which is for those who you know you should google it or whatever but it's basically a very very interesting magnet that fundamentally alters how we would potentially create energy and as we think about fusion, which is really the next big step in energy for us, you know, and there are a bunch of really great new companies that are doing awesome work there. Um, you know, it gives you the ability to potentially radically alter the cost, the amount of energy, the, the, the time to development, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not going to go down the physics side of, the, of that part of it. There's a lot of skepticism over whether this invention is real or not. And to your point, it doesn't matter. If it is, if it is, if it is, if it's 96% of the way there, if it's 80% of the way there, it doesn't matter. It's shown a pathway, and that's the important thing. And whether and you know AI may or may not get us there, but guess what? I think AI will absolutely participate in that. And so these 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 at the at the very beginning and the very end of the discovery process, AI is now at a point where it is taking away millions and millions of people hours per day work that then will optimize the people who have been doing that so they can get us through that middle sector, that kind of valley of death where so much fails. And then AI can get back involved and can systematize it, automate it and run it out the, run it, run it down the path. And whether we're talking about biotech or energy or material science, which is another really interesting area or how to convert, how to create more, um, more reliable production ready quantum computers, which is, I can't believe we've made it this far in the conversation without saying quantum. That's a, that's, that's rare for us, frankly. Um, you know, all of these next steps, the companies in my mind that are going to be the ones that, that really create that, that real scaled value, you know, they create the quantum computer chip that goes in your phone in a couple of decades. They're the ones that create that that silver bullet cancer drug that we that so many people get excited about, or frankly, they should be looking more at like childhood cancer. I mean, that that's an area that has been ignored for decades that really needs some energy attached to it. Um, but it would allow us to spend more time on diseases that have far more applicability that that aren't just based on how much someone can pay, which is one of the reasons why you know we have this massive debt structure in the healthcare system in this country, and move it to actually solving some of these bigger issues and. It doesn't matter, but the the ability for us to automate and then use some degree of AI to solve that problem is is inexorable. And frankly, if I am looking at a company that's operating one of these spaces and I don't hear them using AI to make themselves more efficient and don't, or if they're a new company and they're not kind of building it into their operations from day one, then I'm gonna have some pause over what I think their long-term, you know, model, their long-term success might look like. Well. You've, you've, you've hit on something that breaks uh, directly into kind of where I want to finish this little last part on in connection with the economy and the disruptive breakthroughs and what it can mean. And, you know, I'll, this year for the markets, and we'll kind of segue a little bit into the markets here, um, the focus for about the last 
year and a half has been on recessions. Probably started around March to, to April of, of last year where people became obsessed with uh, the concept of recessions. And what you just described in terms of you know, LK99, the longevity side and the breakthroughs we're seeing in healthcare. We went from the early 1990s, um, you were at Netscape, it came out, I believe went public in 94. Uh, we did. We had a recession in the 1991 period, and then the next recession we had was in the 2000 to 2003 period, really one, one, two. So we went 10 years without it. Then we had uh, obviously the great financial crisis uh, in 08, 09, and then it took a pandemic to get the next one. So if you kind of go through, we've we've really had a spacing out of about 10 years. And even though people are obsessed with a recession call right now, I, I don't see it happening and don't think it will. And one of the reasons is because I think AI, the most important impact is not about earnings. It is about what efficiency and productivity will look like in, in the future. And even though that will mean almost assuredly uh, some type of pressure on employees, the big thing is uh, I have spent the last 14 years on this concept of abundance uh, and then going in reverse and saying, well, what is a recession or a business cycle? And it's really about scarcity at the end of the day. And AI is getting us closer and closer uh, to abundance. So do you think there's a chance, and again, this is a, a kind of a, a, a bold statement, that the way recessions look like and how they act will be disrupted by the speed of, of AI, meaning five years from now, will we be talking about efficiencies and productivity, which make it very difficult uh, to think of scarcity the same way? Oh. That's such a good question, Jordy. I, you know, when you and I last talked about this, I, I hypothesized the notion of, you know, the GDP of a nation not necessarily being that valuable, valuable of a metric in the not too distant future, and it, and it ties into this. And I, I want to start my answer by talking about that because that implies that there's a single economy in the United States, right, or in any one country. I am not convinced that 20 years from now that will be the most effective. I, mean, I don't think it's the most effective way now, but I think it'll be more in the in the in the mainstream of thought 10, 20 years from now, because we are going to have so many little economies that interact with each other in very automated and, and I'll say buffered ways that there are still going to be certain places where, you know, housing is a great example. Energy is another example where the emotional impact of that subset, subset of the overall market could have bigger ripples. But that these individual markets are organized, it kind of self-organized because of things like automation and artificial intelligence to create buffers. And so the ability for recessions to exist is harder because you can't just knock out one subset of a market and then all of a sudden everything else tumbles over. When we move away from human work time being the fundamental metric under which economic output is measured, which is still where we are today. I wonder if we're finally at that turning point. And this is like this is this is like the kid who cried wolf. About every five to ten years, some some guy writes a paper or a book, whether it's about the fourth industrial revolution or you know whatever, and they try to argue that economics point. I do wonder if we're we're kind of getting to a point where at least at at the base layer, there won't be that ability for that to happen very easily. Uh, especially because that's kind of the positive case side of it. The negative cases, if that does happen, it means there's a fundamental structural flaw in the overall market system, right? And I think we've proven after a couple hundred years that's not the case. And I will give, I will go back to fusion as kind of the last part of the example. 
you know, the most interesting fusion company out there, and I won't name drop them here, um, is really going to build two devices, right? One is a device that sits at the base layer of, of energy demand within a municipal infrastructure. So it's the bottom 25%. It's the 20% that runs the water treatment plant. It's the 20% that runs the hospitals. It's that very steady state, keeps the streetlights going. All the variability can be in the organic batteries that we currently use, i.e. fossil fuels. The second device they make is actually super interesting because it generates rare earth, which has obviously been in the news a bit recently with certain activities from the Chinese Communist Party. And so we are at this moment where I think you will start seeing AI do two things. It will create a base layer of economic buffer that insulates us from massive economic disruptions in certain areas, and that will continue to grow over the next few decades. And the second is it creates the black swans. It creates the company that is going to have 20 employees instead of 2,000. And those 20 employees as, a, as an average unit of work are orders of magnitude, more efficient and more value generating than the ones in the other companies. And so, you know, there's a, I mean, I'll give you a great example. You know, there is a, a startup hedge fund that we're, we're working with. And, you know, if you were to take the size of what that hedge fund should be in terms of human capital, et cetera, et cetera, it probably should be, you know, somewhere between 75 and hundred employees. You know, it's kind of, if you look at their peer group, that's kind of where they should be. I'm not convinced they're going to have 15, right? Think about what that means in terms of just, you know, the money that flows out the door on a weekly or monthly basis, right? I mean, you, you can speak to that with, with a massive amount of credibility, right? Just imagine, you know, what that ends up looking like to, to the space. And so the ability to build disruptive, differentially scaled businesses with differential human capital value creation was very much limited to specific categories of places where technology had a direct application. I think we're moving past that. I think it is now much broader across the overall market cycle. Um, we're, we're, we're actually, uh, we're getting near the end of time. We have a, a couple questions that, that have come in. So I'll, I'll, I'll break it here just because we only have a, a couple things left to talk about from, from the list. One of them was directed, the first one was towards me and it's a simple one, but the question was, uh, do I think there's a possibility that long duration stocks uh, are performing in the face of yields going higher, the selling in treasuries, um, due to AI reducing future CapEx as opposed to the liquidity element. And my own thought on this just real quickly, and then I'll, the other questions are really for you. Um, number one, uh, I think the web 1.0 and 2.0 playbook is out, meaning I think from talking to people that everyone assumes with a new technology that it's gonna be about buying tech stocks. And I think the mega cap names have, have gone up significantly partly because of the AI enthusiasm, which is not only seen in what the NDX is doing, but even the startups, there's been some very large uh, raises at much higher multiples. So there's a lot of enthusiasm in the private market, at least isolated to AI at this point. So I think bringing out the web 1.0 playbook that the winners will be the same. And you know we don't have to get into this, but I know you've got views on buying companies was part of web 2.0, just buy up everything that was a competitor and AI is not gonna allow for that because these are more customized and, and they're really gonna be completely different. So I do think smaller businesses will eventually uh, uh, win out. But for the time being, I think it's a combination of just cheap tech stocks, people diving in with a new technology, and I think eventually we'll get back into where higher rates will, will be worse for longer duration stocks. Um, 
another question which just came in for you. Can you cross-fertilize Caesar Hidalgo's law of relatedness to this discussion and changing developing world opportunities? I hope you know how to answer that. I have no idea what's being discussed. <laughs> we do not have 20 minutes for me to talk about <laughs> that. I, 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 mean, I, I mean, the short answer is yes, but I think is, is how I would answer that right now. The, the interconnectedness of the world, and I actually would go back to James Burke um, to, to, to out-nerd the person who asked that question um, of connections and the day the universe changed uh, vein. He actually nailed this, which is that fundamentally small improvements in technology generations later are so institutionalized that they fundamentally alter the culture. And I think that's what we're seeing now. I think the difference that matters now is that the time scale of those impacts is now measured in days, weeks, not years and decades. So that's my short answer. Well, in the last, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll take it, I know you have to jump right around noon. We'll, we'll finish it up in seven minutes, but I do want to talk a little bit about, not specifically the project we're working on, but some of the things with inside the hedge fund world for people out there that might be thinking about this. Um, do you believe that what we're working on is an indication that the world of hedge funds, where there's been a very, very difficult barrier to entry for using artificial intelligence in your business, where it took a lot of money uh, for the investment and it took a lot of people, that this gives a chance for smaller hedge funds for much smaller costs to be able to compete with the larger ones. Absolutely, yes. So if you look at the mega cap hedge funds that have had a bit of a monopoly on using artificial intelligence because of just hundreds of millions of dollars, hundreds of people required to do so much of this work, it is now not that, not remotely. And you know the ability for, and I'll speak more broadly, not just on the hedge fund side, but what three years ago would take 100 or $200 million and a couple hundred people and a couple of years, you can now do with you know, cut a zero off dollars, cut a zero off people, and you know, cut 50%, if not more, off the time to delivery. And so, you know, I would say that hedge funds are going to probably be on the front end of this because they are tend to be early adopters in a lot of ways of a lot of these advanced technologies. I, I think there's a lot of opportunity for for mid-tier hedge funds to radically, radically compete in a way they haven't been able to compete before. Yeah, and I, I can just I can just say to everyone listening, the reason that I listened to Sultan and I bought my own laptop and focused on downloading Python, taking Python 101, uh, going through the process of, of uploading AutoGPT, understanding the power of it, using it, using Code Interpreter to the point where, you know, in no exaggeration, by the time the week is out, I've averaged generally more than four hours a day using artificial intelligence with part of everything I do, including data analysis and Bloomberg and everything, that if you use it, there is a tremendous amount of benefits that come. And I think that led, that belief led me to saying, hey, I think we got to work together because there's some things that I always wanted to build. And I think the market's been disrupted. And that's the final thing that I kind of wanted to speak about, which is you know, with inside the hedge fund world, one of the most important things is risk management. And one of the most important things to making money is to make sure that you come up with a risk framework that can help you be in control of your portfolio. And behind that is a need for the stability of the relationship between correlations and volatility, uh, because every risk model to some degree is assuming those. And it is my belief that because of AI, over the last 
I'll, I'll say four years for sure, but let's say three in general. We've kind of left this world, and I don't think people have caught up on it, where risk models and these, these ubiquitous risk models that everyone uses now, you still have human inputs of figuring out what data you're going to use to say you're hedged. And yeah. nothing is worse in managing money than thinking you're hedged and you not being hedged. So the project we're working on is under that assumption. Can you just talk a little bit about your beliefs in that um, and how much you guys have worked on it already? Sure. I mean, I, I, and, and here's a place where my experience kind of leads me to, to have a, a slightly different view than many others, because I've actually run both financial services and biotechnology programs through you know, federal regulatory bodies and then was also a federal regulator. And so understanding how to think about hybrid risk models and where risk models fail in a variety of different areas. I've, I've had firsthand visibility to that in, in, on both sides of the table. And let me tell you, I think most risk models that are used, I think both in, in biotechnology and in financial services, which I have you know, direct experience with, are frankly uh, inaccurate in most cases. They aren't actually fully understanding where the risk is. There's far too much human interfe interference with it. And there are a lot of places, and I, and I cite some of the banking issues we've had in this nation over the last year and a half, where human assumption, or it's always been that way, or it hasn't, you know, whatever, whatever, gets you to a point where there's complacency amongst these environments, and there's too much change in the in the in the market right now. Whether it's real-time payments on the banking side, or changes in Fed interest rates happening at a, at a different rate than what the models can absorb, or simply understanding the impacts of of what your hedging infrastructure looks like relative to what you actually think it is versus to what it actually is. And so having the ability to build risk models where it's not just a risk model or five risk models, maybe it's 150 risk models with thousands of different factors that are all operating in a dynamic environment so that what it's actually providing is not a score saying, oh, we're fine. It's saying, here are a bunch of different ways of looking at this. Here's some traditional methodologies. Here's some more advanced methodologies using AI and understanding how those live with each other. And then the discussion becomes, it's an evaluation of different risk models in parallel that allows someone like Jordy to be able to say, well, you know, if the market's kind of doing things like this, I'm comfortable with risk model A. But you know what? This is a different environment we're in. I'm looking at a sub, I'm looking at a very specific market that's acting in a very specific way. We need to think about it in a different way and understand what it means relative, not just to the portfolio, individual portfolio, but the overall organization. And the ability to do that in real time, the ability for that to just be sitting, you know, on Jordy's screen, I don't think too many organizations do it. I don't care what market you're in. And I know that if that existed. In the banking infrastructure, um, I think a couple of banks that don't exist anymore would probably still exist. I think a number of drugs that have been pulled off the market would never have gotten there to begin with. And you know, certainly the data shows in both cases that everything needed to make decisions in both those cases was publicly available already. And so it just, they weren't thinking about risk the right way. All right, so then we have 90 seconds. So I'm gonna make one little statement here on, on what you just said and just give people a little bit more on this risk model concept. Risk models. Uh, not only have to use historical relationships, but then the output that they're trying to measure is things like growth and value and quality and momentum and a whole bunch of different factors. The number one factor to generate performance this year has been AI. Um, you can go back to pandemic, you can go back to reopening. In a world of AI, I think assuming that historical factors mean anything in the marketplace where change is happening so rapidly, 
I just think you're going to have an instability in both the risk models and those relationships between correlations involved, but also in factors. So let's end it with one final question for you. If people want to read more about what you're talking about on a daily basis and see more of Sultan, where can they find you? Uh, just spell my name right and put it in Google um, or go to sultanismyname.com. That's the, the, the marketing person's website. <laughs> All right, Sultan, we've extended our relationship uh, even further with this conversation. Thanks to Real Vision again. Uh, and I'm sure both of us will be seeing you again uh, soon. Fantastic. Thanks for having me. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.